Well, good morning. In case you came in late, I am not Brian Davis, if you were looking for him. Um, unfortunately, our brother was unable to make it in light of the weather. He sat in an airport for eight hours yesterday, so he tried. Um, so if you know him, you can send him a text, uh, tell him that you, you miss him, um, and you wish he was here because it would have been a better sermon than what you're about to get, which is fine. Um, but do tell him uh, that you, you missed him. Uh, Lord willing, we'll find another time to get him here. But um, this morning, we thought when we discovered last night that uh, we were going to be doing something else this morning. We thought, what would be a good, a good transition between the series that we just did in the Ten Commandments and the series that we're about to step into after Resurrection Sunday, which is the book of Titus, Good Doctrine, Good Deeds. And we thought, why don't we get Jesus' take on the Ten Commandments? And so we, this morning, are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. I was going to do chapter 5 through 7. That would have been a sermon as long as Brian Davis sometimes preaches, but to which my wife says, come on, who are you kidding? Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we'll just do chapter 5. Let's pray, though, and ask God for some help. Father, we thank you that we can come to you at any time. You're never thrown off by short notice. You are always ready and living, and always faithful, always good, always ready to supply everything that we need at every moment. So in light of that, we come to you as a needy bunch asking for help. Oh, would you meet us where we are? Lord, pray for those who are in this room who maybe this is their first time in a church. And they're not religious at all, but they're trying to figure out if, they're, if you're even there. Or might you meet them today by your mercy and show them uh, through the words of the Lord Jesus who, who you are. Pray for those who maybe are, 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 have been walking with you for a long time and need a fresh reminder of what it is that we are called to. Meet them there. Or wherever we are, meet each of us by your spirit, through your scriptures, and show us yourself that we might be moved to respond to you rightly. That you, you, would, you would make us a people who, who aim to please you in everything that we do while resting in what Christ has done and striving by the grace that you supply to, to imitate him in however many days you give us. So would you bless our time now in your word? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand, hearts to believe, affections that are warmed, wills that are surrendered, bodies that are readied? Would you bless your word? Show us Jesus. And change us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, what kind of religion is pleasing to God? What kind of religion is pleasing to God? There is a religion that is pleasing to God, and there is a religion that is displeasing to God. So what, what kind of religion is, is pleasing to him? And this is essential because there's a real temptation for people who are religious, which if you're in this room, you're doing something religious. Don't just cast that off. There's, there's a temptation, though, for people who are seeking God, who are trying to, to live a religious life, a disciplined life for the, 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 the glory of God, to, to reduce following God to merely externals, to focus on the, the external performance rather than, than the, the heart. It's easy to show up at the right time in the right place, wearing the right stuff, standing up when you're supposed to and sitting down when you're supposed to. It's easy to do those sorts of external things that maybe you get a Bible cover with a cross on it or veggie tails or whatever your thing is. 
Maybe you, you vote a certain way or you, you listen to a certain kind of music or this or that or whatever. It's easy to do those external sorts of things. And externals are very important. But they are not the supreme thing. You see, God, a religion that pleases him, is a religion that comes from the heart, that is moved with a real encounter with him that moves from the heart and then changes everything on the outside. It's an inside-out religion rather than just a paint-up-the-outside religion. If there was ever a text in the scriptures that point us to that, it is Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus comes on on the scene and walks into a day where everybody got it wrong about religion and he, he shines light into a dark world and says, this is who God is, this is what it means to know him, this is true religion, a religion that pleases God. So if we were going to summarize Matthew chapter 5, it might go something like this. God is pleased with religion that pursues true reward and practices true righteousness. God is pleased with religion that pursues true reward and practices true righteousness, which we're going to all see comes from the, from the heart. We're going to break this text up into two major sections. Pursue true reward, verses 3 through 16. Pursue true reward, verses 3 through 16. And then practice true righteousness, verses 17 through the end of the, the chapter. Let's look here at Matthew chapter 5. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, in case this is the first time you've ever heard this text, we're asking, so who, who's this man on the mount, mountain? Well, what you're going to learn is this is not just some spiritual guru touring around the Middle East giving religious pep talks to anybody who will show up. Rather, this is... This is a man who's different. If you begin in chapter 1, you see that he's called the Christ. He is the Savior. He is God with us, Matthew 1 says. He's the, the promised one who came to rescue the world from, from sin and death. In chapter 2, we learn that he's the king of the Jews who came to do the Father's will and to reign in righteousness over God's people. In chapter 3, we see that he's the Lord who's filled with the Holy Spirit in whom the Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's chapter 4, the one who goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan himself and resists all of his temptations. His name, we learn, is Jesus. This man on the mountain here is Jesus. His name means God saves he is the savior of the world, and he comes with a message. And his message is, Matthew 4, verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is about to judge the world, he says. So turn from your rebellion against him and receive me as your king. The gospel of Matthew is the presentation of Jesus as the worthy king. Jesus is showing us what it means to know God and who it is that will enjoy God's kingdom. And it's not what you would expect because everything we learn in the world in which we live is actually upside down. And what Jesus comes to do is to show us that, that you want to get ahead, it's not by trampling upon others, but it's by serving them. The ones who are exalted are the humble, not the proud. Everything is backwards, Jesus says. So let me, 
let me show you what it means to truly be pleasing to God. And, and what you really need is a Savior. It's not that we need better politicians or better religious leaders, though we need both of those. But we need to be born again. We need to be united with Jesus by faith because that will produce true life from the heart that is pleasing to God and joyful for us. It's what we were created to know, and Jesus comes to, to give it in full. Now, just to connect it with the series we just finished, Jesus is here acting as the greater Moses. Israel was enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. God used Moses to deliver them out and then give them the law so that they might know him. Jesus has come to a people who are enslaved in sin, and he is leading them out, and he is here now coming at the Sermon on the Mount to give them the instruction of God's law. Not to do away with it, but to correctly interpret it because everybody got it twisted. And he comes to set the record straight. Let's look first at what he says about pursuing true reward. God is pleased with those who pursue true reward. Verse 3. He opens his mouth and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this section, Jesus gives nine proverb-like statements that describe the, the, the qualities of believers, who kingdom people are, and the blessings that these believers experience. There's a word you saw a bunch of times here, blessing, right? Blessed are you. Blessing. The word means happiness or, or favor, um, commonly known as the beatitudes. It's a Latin word for blessing. Through union with Christ, we experience the good life. You see, what, what Jesus is teaching is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. What, it, what, what kind of people make up his kingdom. And ultimately, we're going to learn is through union with him, this, this happens. So through union with him, there is a life that is produced in the believer. And it looks like this. It's a life that is blessed. Not always with health. Not always with the home that you wanted, not always with the promotion you were hoping for, not with kids who potty, potty train themselves. Like it's not that kind of blessing where just everything goes the way you wish it would. But it's a blessing where this, these people are loved by God. And they are being transformed to be into the image of the one that they were created to know and to reflect. They're going to be made like Jesus. These qualities that we see here in verses 3 through 12, they serve as both descriptions of believers 
and prescriptions for believers. They're both descriptions of and prescriptions for believers. They're descriptions of believers. So what does a Christian look like? What does a disciple of Jesus look like? What does a child of God look like? What does it look like to be born again? What what does a kingdom citizen look like? Jesus says, well, they're poor in spirit. They, They know that they're spiritually bankrupt, and they can offer nothing to God to be accepted by him. They mourn over sin done by them and sin done to them. They're meek. They're content in God, patiently enduring whatever it is that he calls them to endure without resentment. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They desire above everything else to know and to enjoy and to live for God. They're they're merciful. They're full of compassion toward others because God has been so merciful to them. They're, They're pure in heart. They fight against all abiding sin because their one treasure is they want to see God. They're peacemakers, which means that they use their their influence to promote charity. They strive to help people love one another. They're persecuted because if they follow me, well, the world hated me and they're going to hate them too. They're going to suffer for the sake of my name, Jesus would say. What's a believer? Looks like that. These, by the way, these qualities, they... They are in opposition to what the world values and what the world promotes as good. It's what the, what the world pushes you toward, right? The, the world pushes you toward, no, you got to be proud. You've you got to be powerful. You've got to manipulate. You've got to step on people. You've got to cling to your rights. Jesus says the world is upside down. It values things that God does not. Those who are born again are going to reflect a different disposition, one that is a blessed one. So this is a description of what believers look like, and it's a prescription for believers, meaning believers possess this and they must pursue it as well, must prayerfully strive to deepen these qualities. Holiness, set-apartness from the world, doesn't just happen. We must pursue it by faith. Lord, make me poor in spirit. Make me meek. Make me merciful. Help me to look like Jesus. Help me to pursue others for peace, even though it's so hard. Help me to endure persecution. This is the the posture of the believer. I possess this, but I want more of it because I want to be more like you, Lord. I want to be more of who you are made me to be. So to be really clear, the gospel isn't to watch what Jesus would do and then go and do that. The gospel is see what Jesus has done, come and believe that. Not live like this and you'll become a Christian, but because you're a Christian, you live this way. Those those are two world apart kind of approaches to God. So when we see this, actually a friend of mine years ago, before he was a Christian, started reading through this, and he got to this, and he just felt crushed. He's like, I can't do that at all. Like, I tried for like three minutes, and I broke most of it. 
He's like, I don't, what do I do? Well, it's intended to point you to the one who's saying these things. Because Jesus fulfilled all of this perfectly and then died for all the ways that we fell short of it. You see, Jesus became poor that we might become rich in him. Jesus mourned not for his own sins, but for ours so that we might receive comfort. Jesus was truly pure in heart, but he did not see God because the Father turned his face away as it was so that we could be reconciled to him. Jesus was meek so much so that he was buried in the earth so that we might inherit it. Jesus was merciful, but he did not receive mercy. Rather, he took wrath that we deserve. Jesus was the Prince of Peace who was treated as an enemy so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Jesus lived this perfectly and then died for all the ways that we didn't. So through faith in Christ, which is what the whole gospel is pointing toward, Jesus' perfect righteousness, which he puts on display his entire life, is credited to our account through faith. And then all of our sin is given to him. It's the great exchange. Jesus, take my sin, and I'll take your righteousness. That's a good deal, by the way. It's the best of deals, right? It's where now our standing with God is, is solely rooted in Christ's finished work, but that changes us now to where our walking with God looks different. It looks like what we've seen here. The Holy Spirit of God now produces a practical righteousness in our lives that looks like, well, it looks like Jesus. So each quality here, we are both to possess, if we're a child of God, and to pursue. And you'll notice all of them are accompanied by the promise of reward. Do you see that? Those who live this way, those who are this way, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Your reward is great in heaven. God assures his people that there is a reward before them that if they will turn from their sin and, and pursue him by faith, fighting off all of the temptations that are within and around, that it's worth it. It's worth it. He will bless you. Now, when do these blessings come? Well, look again. Verse 3 and verse 10 are in the present. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted. That's present tense, right now. Right now, there is blessing for living rightly with God. You are not ensnared and destroyed by sin in the same way that you would be if you were in the world of the world. There is a blessing now. But it's also future. You notice verses 4 through 9? It's all will be, will be, not yet. So there's a foretaste of glory now that we experience, and there's a promise of glory then. And, and, and a, a religion that pleases God is one that, that, that pursues true reward, not what the world gives in fleeting pleasure, but rather in being like him, and abiding with him, and knowing him, and enjoying him. You get him. He's the reward in this life and in the life. 
come. Now, life in Christ is, it's a blessed life, but it's also a life that blesses others. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Union with Jesus produces the life of Jesus in you and through you. It's what the Bible calls fruit. It comes out by the Spirit of God. The Spirit produces fruit in you, the life of Jesus in you. And, and when that's coming out, it distinctly impacts the world around you. And Jesus uses two everyday illustrations to make that clear for us. Which, by the way, just notice as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, which we're not going to do the whole thing, but when you read it from here on, Notice how much Jesus just draws on nature to teach you about life. God designed the world intentionally with all sorts of physical things to teach you about him. He says, take for instance salt and light. Salt first. So if you, if you go to the Dead Sea to get minerals, which by the way is the most, it's the Dead Sea area is the most mineral rich deposit on the planet. And you would go there and you would gather up a bag full of salt now, salt was so valuable that it was even commonly used as currency by traders. Why? Because it had so many purposes, right? You could season your food, right? A little steak, put a little salt on it. Um, you could enrich soil for gardening. You could throw it on a dung pile to preserve it for fertilizer. There's lots of uses, very practical uses for, for salt in this day. But... If salt was left out and it got too much dew on it or too much rain on it, it would get leached out and it becomes basically useless. And all you can do is take it outside and throw it on the street for people to trample on. The exhortation is stay salty. Stay distinct in the world by possessing and pursuing these sorts of qualities Stay salty in a good way. There's a bad way to be salty. That's of the world. Don't be doing that. Some of you are like, oh, this sounds like fun. No, not that kind of salty. Jesus has a different salty. It's a good one. He also now uses the light, uh, light, light, light of the world, he says you are. The world is dark with sin. It's filled with lies and deception. Believers are light in the world. It, he says it's like a city set on a hill. You can't miss a city. Like when you're driving up on New York City, you don't be like, oh, I didn't see it. Like it's there. It's on. It's plugged in, turned on. The lights are, are bright. Our lives are supposed to be the same way. When you get around believers, there's supposed to be light that is radiating out of you because of your, as it were, plugged into Christ. Not simply because you have a, a cross necklace or some kind of Jesus jewelry or, you know, you got the Ten Commandments tatted on your neck or what, like that's not what it, it's not just that. Like there's something different about you. Because these qualities, when you're around somebody who's meek, somebody who's, who's not there for the fight, but they're pursuing peace, you, they're different. He says we're to be 
different. We should look like Jesus because we've been with Jesus. Lamps in the, the first century Palestine were these small clay cups with an oil, oil wick. And at night, there's no electricity. And, and the, the lamp is put there in the center of the house, and it gives light to everybody. But if you cover it up, who does it bless? Nobody. Jesus says, don't do that with your light. Rather, verse 16, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't worry about this, church. Obey Jesus. Serve Jesus. Pursue these sorts of qualities. Don't, don't cover up your witness. Don't, don't silence your words. Don't restrain. And yes, you're in a world that does not want to hear it and not want to see it. But the Lord says, we are light, so let it shine. You, if you are following Jesus, it will come out of you. You have to intentionally say, mm, I'm not going to say anything here. I'm gonna, maybe I should ask him if I can pray for him. No, I don't want to do that. You know what? I think I, should, I, should, I think I should talk to him about Jesus. No, I'm not going to do it. Restraining those things, don't grieve the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Aim to obey. It gives life and light. And it will require you to speak words. All of this is, is tied together. But it's, it's the sort of religion that pursues the true reward. Lord, I want to be like you. I want to know you. I want to experience you and what you have for me. God, give me strength to do that because I want you to be glorified. That's the kind of religion that pleases the Lord. Not one that produces some kind of strutting around self-righteousness that judges everybody. Like whatever that is, that's not from the Lord. If you've encountered Jesus, you don't strut. Nobody struts when they meet Jesus. They fall down and they walk humbly before their God. May we be that sort of people. May we pursue true righteousness. And may we also practice true, pursue true reward and practice true righteousness. Now, verse 5, 17 through following. Uh, let's look at verses 17 through 20. Practice true righteousness. This is Jesus again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, after Jesus says verse 20, everybody in the crowd goes, oh, like, they're like, no, he didn't just say that, did he? Like, he did. Now, I'll tell you why it's so important. The scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day. The scribes are basically the seminary professors. The Pharisees are basically the pastors. And Jesus says three striking things about them and the sort of religion that the crowd is used to because of their leadership. The first thing Jesus makes clear is that he fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He was accused by these religious leaders of being anti-law, anti-prophets, anti-Israel because his teaching contradicted the teaching of the religious leaders. And the reason is because the religious leaders' teaching was contradicting God. 
You see, Jesus assures that he is what the law pointed to. He is what the prophets hoped for. Jesus did not come to abolish them. He didn't come to get a, do away with them. He came to fulfill them. Second thing we notice here is that God's word can't be voided. God's word can't be voided. That whatever God promises, he will bring to pass. Which means we have no right to edit God's word. You can't add stuff. You think, ah, God should have said this. You don't get to take stuff out. Man, I don't like that. We got to take that out. We have no right to do that. You ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Any of you ever heard of that before? Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible. I don't know if you knew this or not. Um, he did not believe in supernatural things. So he went through and he cut out every, literally with scissors, he went through and cut out every supernatural occurrence, every miracle, everything. He cut it, he cut it all out of the Gospel of Mark and then ended with the last thing is and they rolled a stone in front and walked away. There's no resurrection. Thomas Jefferson, that's his Bible. You can't do that, like you can, but that doesn't end well. You, we have no right to edit God. And Jesus comes on the scenes and says, don't get it twisted, y'all. I'm not here to contradict God's word in the law and the prophets. I'm not removing any of it. Actually, it's these jokers who've done it. You see, because what God requires is true righteousness, which is the third thing that he talks about here in this 17 through 20. You see, the, the Pharisees were employed in full-time obedience. It was their job. They, they memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They memorized the entire thing. It was their job to practice righteousness. Their entire job was that. So if there's anybody you would think that's going to make it to heaven, it's these guys. But Jesus says, actually, be very careful. Because if you follow them and the way they pursue God, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They have a phony religion. And that's where Jesus goes in the rest of the, the section. He's going to show the difference between a phony religion and a false religion. A phony religion is the kind of religion that these, these scribes and Pharisees uh, cultivated. It's merely a focus on external actions. Jesus, though, calls for a faithful religion. One that has an internal root that produces external fruit. Where God's glory is the goal. One that rightly interprets the law, which is where he goes in 521 through 48. Jesus expounds commands from the law of God. He, he, he's going to say, listen, y'all, we need to go back to school because these guys have been leading you astray. And, 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 and what, he, what he's coming here, is he, what he's going to come and do is he is going to say six times, you have heard that it was said, but I say. What Jesus is not doing is doing away with the law. He just said that. I did not come to do away with the law. I did not come to abolish it or uh, to, to get rid of it. Okay, that's not what I came to do. And he's not giving a new law. Rather, Jesus is stepping up as the faithful rabbi, the greater Moses, as it were, and he is teaching what God always meant by the commandments. He'd be like, these religious leaders have changed what God meant. I'm going to show you what God always meant by the commandments. And I'm going to give you six examples. So it's not just the Ten Commandments that he draws from. Several of them are the Ten Commandments. But he draws from the law to show the sort of religion that pleases God. 
a true righteousness. Number one, supposed to have a heart of peacemaking. God wants a heart of peacemaking. Chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is quoting here the sixth commandment. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. Yes, don't murder. That's like the basic rule of life. You can't just go kill people. People will make you mad. You can't just go kill them. Yes. But I say, and this, just to be clear, Jesus is not canceling the commandment. He's correcting the interpretation of the commandment. God forbids murder in your heart. He doesn't just worry about what you do with your hand. He doesn't want murder in your heart. God sees the hate that you have toward others. Those feelings of of anger. Those words of slander. Those words that tear others down. The resentment. He says, that is murder in your heart. You see, Jesus is exposing here the emptiness of their external religion. He's like, congratulations for not killing each other. That's good. But God's people are called to more than just not kill each other. God wants something that's deeper than that. He wants a heart that's about peacemaking, that pursues love. This, by the way, is the difference between morality and Christianity. The the Santa Claus gospel of be good for goodness sake sends people to hell. Nobody gets saved for being good for goodness sake. That does not make you right for God. You are good for God's sake because Christ has been perfect for your sake. The aim is totally different. One is just just rules that you keep so that you feel good about yourself versus this is from the heart aiming to please God. Those are worlds apart. Hell will be filled with moral people. So you didn't kill people? Great. How's your Twitter feed? How's your, how's, your, how's your water cooler talk at work? How's your convos about that person when they're not there? Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to, terms, uh, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. God says, <laughs> Jesus says, God wants something more than your external offerings and your religious activities. They're important, but they are emptied of value if everything else is missing, if the heart behind them is missing. Jesus says, you can do religious activities all day long, but if it's not producing love, you're heading for judgment. So if you're about to do some religious act and you show up and you think, oh my goodness, I've sinned against that person. 
He says, this is to people who are three miles away from the temple. He says, put it down. Go, leave it at the temple. Go all the way back home, make it right, and then come back and do your offering. God does not just want your external religious activities. He wants you to pursue peacemaking with one another. If there's somebody that you need to reconcile with, Jesus would say, go make it right. If there's anger in your heart, don't feel good. Well, at least I didn't kill anybody. He says, make it right before you stand before the judge because it's coming. Pause. There's a lot of nuance here about aiming to make things right with people who don't want to be made right and all that kind of stuff. Flesh it out over lunch, and we're happy to have pastoral conversations. But the point here is, don't just settle for not killing people. Jesus wants your heart. Number two, heart of purity. He wants a heart of purity. Right? He wants a, he wants a heart of Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the seventh commandment. God gave marriage as a a sacred gift to a a husband and a wife. And and faithfulness therein is to be protected. Don't give yourself to anyone but your spouse, Jesus says. Good. But I say it's more than just that. So you haven't committed adultery. Good. That's good. But that's not all we're going for here. God forbids adultery of the heart. To lust after someone who's not yours through the covenant of marriage, whether it be on the street, whether it be on a screen, whether it be a man, whether it be a woman. He says, God sees what's happening in your heart. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is about faithfulness that springs from the heart, not just what happens in a bedroom. Now, I want to be really clear, lust is not the same as adultery, in the same way that anger is not the same as murder. Lust and, 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 and adultery are the same family of sins, but there's different degrees of maturity of those sins. Lust is the seed, adultery is the, the weed, as it were. Lust is the root, adultery is the, the fruit. They're qualitatively the same, meaning they're the same sort of sin, But they're quantitatively different. It's a different degree or severity, exceedingly so. Which doesn't weaken the punch in any way. Because the point is that lust condemns you before God just as much as adultery does. Though judgment for adultery would be more severe. God wants people with pure hearts. Jesus is, by the way, using hyperbolic language here. He doesn't want you to mutilate yourself. You can do a little reading up on Origen, who kind of took it a little too far and it didn't, he discovered that it didn't fix the problem. But um, the point here is, is clear. Don't cultivate lust in your heart and feel like I'm okay because I didn't commit adultery. He says, no, that leads to judgment as well. Thirdly, have a heart of faithfulness. Have a heart of faithfulness. Verse 31, 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, we could do an entire series on this with tons of nuance. Jesus, in this context, is addressing a particular situation. There's a debate among a couple different um, camps of religious leaders over Deuteronomy 24 that speaks of divorcing for any indecency. And there was a big debate over what that meant. One rabbi, who was a conservative rabbi, said that the only way, the only reason for divorce ever was sexual immorality. And there was another rabbi who was more progressive who said that basically you could divorce for anything. If she burnt the meal, there you go. That's good enough of grounds for divorce. And what Jesus is doing is he's exposing the flippancy toward the institution that reflects God's love for his, his people. Now again, we could do an entire series here. There's more verses than this in the Bible about what uh, constitutes for, for divorce. But what Jesus is saying here to these people who had a flippant view toward, toward marriage was, you've got to understand what God wants is faithfulness from the heart. And a heart that's just flippant toward the covenant that you made before God, that is a heart that leads to condemnation. Fourthly, he wants a heart of honesty. A heart of honesty, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or it, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And understand what Jesus is going after. You've got to understand this religious culture of the day. There's no sacred secular divide. Everything is religious. Everything you do is in the name of Yahweh if you're in Israel. And oaths are a major part of religious life in Israel. Oaths are basically attached to everything that you do. It's, it's, it's making a commitment to God as an act of worship. But, as with anything good... The system had become corrupted, and it became a system of mincing words. That if you swore by your head, and you didn't break it, it's not that big a deal. I swore by my head. I mean, it's fine, right? And what it did is it cultivated a nation of what? What kind of people, if, if you're always kind of, you can't really tell, are you going to be able to trust those sorts of people? You never know what you're getting into. You've got this nation of deceivers, that they're all learning how to, to use words and be crafty and not really mean what they say. If you just word it a certain way, you can get out of it and it's no big deal at all. It didn't cultivate honesty. I mean, we're in D.C., you hear a politician answer a question, they'll be like, I mean, they don't answer the question typically, some of you do, I'm sure. But like, there's many, and those of you represent, but, but the, there's many who, you ask them a straightforward question, and they're like, well, you know, Jupiter's not that, he's pretty far away, but not as far as the other planets. And, and then you're just sort of like, did they say anything? The whole system in Israel had become like that with oaths. It was just disorienting, and you never knew if you could really trust anybody's word at all. 
These are supposed to be the people of the living God who never lies. Jesus says, no, God is trustworthy, and when his people speak, you shouldn't wonder what they mean. Now, he's not, by the way, doing away with all oaths here. So if you take marriage vows, sign contracts, uh, you know, take an oath in court, as it were, that's a different sort of th- thing there. What he's doing is he's exposing and forbidding deceitful speech. Do you tell the truth? Are you known for swearing to your own hurt? This is, this is a real thing for us. Right? Do, do you ever leave out details about stories to make yourself look a little better? It's tax season. I'll keep bringing it up. Don't lie on your taxes. Are you, are you budging the numbers a little bit just to make sure you can get a little extra in your pocket? Here's one I'm guilty of. I'll say, hey, let's get together sometime. I'd love, to, I'd love to get a meal with you, which is true. But when I look at my schedule and the fact that I can't be omnipresent, it's not something that I should always say. I should say it if I mean it, but sometimes I, I say it because I want it to happen, but that it just can't always happen. It's something I've had to grow in over the years to really try to restrict that because otherwise, if you're the person who's always making empty promises, people are going to have a harder time trusting you. So if I've said I want to get together with you, I do, but I'm sorry I haven't. Please forgive me. Um, but this is, when you speak, do you speak the truth? Do you tell the truth to people? God wants a heart of honesty. I mean, can you just see how Jesus is not fine with just empty external religion? You're not killing people. You're not cheating on people. I mean, you're, you're only making, you know, Oaths that are, don't swear to God, this kind of, you know, getting divorced. All these, he wants it deeper. God wants our hearts. He's not done. Verse 38. He wants a heart of forgiveness. He wants a heart of forgiveness. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if, some, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would... Would sue you and take your tunic? Let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Referring to a Roman law. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is drawing on um, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19 here with these, these command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I want you to just imagine a world for a moment where there's no 911. There's no police. Courts are, you get a couple buddies together and you're deciding things. Imagine a world like that. And then someone rapes your sister. Which is exactly what happened in Genesis 34 with Dinah. And what did Simeon and Levi do? You touch my sister, I'm going to kill all the men. And they did. They went in and they, they butchered all of the men of the city. God says, my people are not supposed to be marked by that. Yes, there's a place for justice. Vengeance is mine, though, says the Lord. You follow my commands for justice. You don't take it into your own hand here. He's... he's, he's He wants to guard his people from being consumed with vengeance and vendettas. There's countries where 
or that's, that's, how, that's, that's the law. Oh, you walked in front of me, I'm going to slash your tires. You slash my tires, I'm going to burn your house. You burn my house, I'm going to kill your whole family. And that's just like, that's the way it goes. God says, my people, it's not supposed to be that way among, among you. He's trying to establish justice here. Now, what it be, what it, what, the way this can get out of control is that it could be tr- twisted to become a means of merciless vengeance. Jesus is showing that God's law, the point of it here, the command, is not to evacuate mercy. God's people ought, ought not be fickle and controlled by how others mistreat them. And I'm not diminishing the severity of some of the mistreatment that some of you have endured. But the point is, don't be controlled by evil. Don't be consumed by criticisms and and insults and pains. Rather, surrender the desire to defend yourself and to punish others and show them the peculiar kind of love that God has shown you. God's people are supposed to be different like that. Going over and above toward those who are unkind to them. Imagine a world where Christians were kind even to those who were unkind to them. It's very possible. Some of you do that very well. I think all of us could grow there. But the climax of the whole teaching here is the sixth example. He wants a heart of love. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, notice whose son it is, it's God's, his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says the law is teaching clearly to love your neighbor. Leviticus 19. Well, the Pharisees said, well, love your neighbor, yes, But your enemy, you should hate them. Not only should you hate them, but it is just and right to hate them. That's what the whole parable of the Good Samaritan was about. Who's my neighbor? Jesus is like, yeah, who's your neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. You be a neighbor. And that's that's an easy sell, isn't it? Love your neighbor, those who are like you and think like you and look like you and vote like you. and Love them, but but them other ones, your enemies, ah, hate them. You're like, I can sell that like hotcakes. Jesus says, no, show love to your enemies in the same way that what? What's the text say? In the same way that what? In the same way God loves his enemies. He makes the sun rise on them just like he did for you. He sends rain on them just like he did for you. He makes their heart beat just like he does for you. He gives them oxygen and lets them suck in mercy every time they breathe just like he does for you. He says, you loving people who are just like you, no different than the world. Even unbelievers love people who look like them, think like them, act like them, vote like them. 
It's easy to love those who love you. There's nothing distinctly godly or holy about that. Love others like God loves you. And be perfect in that. Did you catch that? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So they're talking about, you just have to have external stuff. Jesus summarized all of this teaching and says, no, actually, be like God. Be perfect like God. To which makes everybody there supposed to say what? I'm doomed then, which Jesus is like, now you're catching on. That's the whole point. The whole point of the law is to push you to recognize, I need a Savior of which Jesus comes to be that. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law. He's the only one who ever did all of this rightly. And then he died for all of the ways that we did it wrongly. And then he rose and now he gives you his spirit so that by his spirit, you can imperfectly but ever progressingly look like Jesus. Even so much that you can love those who hate you. Jesus came to be murdered for murderers. He came to be pierced for those who are perverse, to be faithful in the face of our unfaithfulness. He showed the Father's love perfectly, died, and then rose that we might now have his spirit, rest in his finished work, and run by all the grace that he supplies as his kingdom people. And as you do, the sort of love that will come out of you will be so distinct, the world won't be able to understand it. Richard Wormbrand was born in 1901 to a Jewish family. He was born again in 1938. He was the founder of a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. Even as I say that, I think there's been some blog posts about him doing stuff. I don't know. But the story that he tells is amazing. He makes known a, the story of a, 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 a persecuted Christian, um, particularly those who he saw suffer while he was imprisoned um, in, in a communist prison in Romania. He recounts one particular story that I think embodies everything that Jesus is calling for here. He says that my right hand was a priest by the name of Isku. He was abbot of a monastery. This man, perhaps in his 40s, had been so tortured he was near to death. But his face was serene. He spoke about his hope of heaven, about his love of Christ, about his faith. He radiated joy. On my left side was the communist torturer who had tortured this priest almost to death. He had been arrested by his own comrades, and they, the comrades, had tortured him nearly to death, and he was dying near to me. And though his body was in uh, agony, his soul was in even greater agony. During the night, he would awaken me saying, Pastor, please pray for me. I can't die. I have committed such terrible crimes. So Richard's here in the middle. He's got a dying monk on one side who's been tortured to death. He's got this dying communist prisoner or uh, guard who's now been turned on and he's being tortured to, to death. He says, then I saw a miracle. I saw the agonized priest calling two other prisoners and leaning on their shoulders slowly, slowly he walked past my bed and sat 
on the bedside of this murderer, and he caressed his head. He said, I will never forget this gesture. I watched a murdered man comforting his murderer. He said, that was love. The priest told him, if I, who am a sinner, can love you so much, imagine Christ, who is love incarnate, how much he loves you. And all the Christians whom you have tortured know that they forgive you, they love you, and Christ loves you. He wishes you to be saved much more than you wish to be saved. You wonder if your sins can be forgiven? He wishes to forgive your sins more than you wish your sins to be forgiven. He desires for you to be with him in heaven much more than you wish to be in heaven with him. He is love. You need only to turn to him and repent. According to Richard, that night, the communist torturer believed upon Christ and he died of his wounds as did the priest whom he had tortured. And they immediately both went into glory together. I hope none of us will be faced by that sort of, of grueling circumstances. But you can see that is what it means to be a Christian. It's different than just mere external stuff that's got it all in order and looks good to everybody else and produces a judgmental kind of heart toward others that tears them down. Which is where Jesus goes with the whole Sermon on the Mount. It protects us, chapter 6, from doing religious stuff for people's applause, but rather to be pleasing to God because that's our treasure. And that frees us from being anxious because we know that God loves us. So we operate now from a posture of being loved, not trying to earn it. And what that does in chapter 7, it produces humility, not to be hypocritical and judgmental of others, but to be wise and discerning, which you need, Jesus says to this crowd and to us, because there's two paths. One leads to, to life and it's narrow, and one leads to death and it's broad. And there's two trees along the way. One is poison fruit and one gives life. And there are, there are two houses that you're building. One that will last through judgment and one that will not which is how he ends the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 21, or 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Friends, all of us today have a decision to respond to Jesus. Some of you have never trusted in him, turned from your sin and trusted in him. I hope you can see that God does not just want you to join a club. He wants you to surrender your life, to repent of your sin, and to trust in him. Today, you can be born again. Merely cry out, ask him to forgive you. Thank him for what Jesus has done and flee by faith to him. And for those of us who do know him, our lives are a continual building upon the rock of the finished work of Jesus that produces a life that on the last day, the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. May we aim for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would make us a people who reflect 
the sort of life that Jesus describes here. Would you produce in us a, peop- a heart that, that loves what you love? Might you make us a people who are so overwhelmed with how you have loved us in spite of ourselves that we would be moved to love others no matter what they have done to us? Lord, we need wisdom of how to navigate some of that, all of it. But Lord, we know that you give it. Lord, would you guard us from thinking we're the exception to the rule, and would you help us, Lord, help us to follow Jesus no matter what the cost and to build upon him who is our rock. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.